The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Lloyd, our show today is about so many important privacy issues with regard to really the implementation of our Constitution of the United States. And we have a wonderful guest coming to us all the way from Washington, D.C. Let me tell you about Sharon Bradford Franklin. She is senior consul at the Constitution Project in Washington, D.C., where her work focuses on the rule of law program. This includes government secrecy and individual privacy, which we've talked about many times on this show. She works principally with the project's Bipartisan Liberty and Security Committee, seeking to protect American civil liberties as well as our nation's security post-September 11th. Before joining the Constitution Project, Sharon served as Executive Director of the Washington Council of Lawyers. And before that, she spent 10 years as a civil rights lawyer in the Housing and Civil Enforcement Section of the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice and in the Office of General Counsel at the Federal Communications Commission. She's a graduate of Harvard College and Yale Law School, and she began her law career as a judicial law clerk to the Honorable Jane Roth, which was first in the U.S. District Court for the District of Delaware and then on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third District. So we are so thrilled to have her. You can find out more about the Constitution Project at our website at KUC at our, our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, where we have her picture, her bio, we have a connection to the URL, and we also are going to direct you to constitutionproject.org. And thank you, Sharon, for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, let's talk a little bit about a recent decision with the GPS tracking on individuals' car. And the the U.S. Supreme Court actually ruled that installing a GPS tracking device was a search under the Fourth Amendment. Why don't you talk a little bit about that to us today? Sure. So uh, the Supreme Court in this uh, case 
um, determined, as you said, that when the police actually attach a GPS tracking device to an individual's car, that counts as a search under the Fourth Amendment. So under normal circumstances, a search warrant and a showing of probable cause would be required. And that was the analysis that the majority uh, focused on. All of the court's members agreed that this was a search under the Fourth Amendment, but the uh, four of the justices applied a different rationale. They looked at a more typical privacy-type analysis um, under the CATS uh, Reasonable Expectation of Privacy test, and they examined this in a slightly different way, saying that this very powerful uh, technology, the GPS device, what the type of pervasive monitoring that it can accomplish really does violate an actual expectation of privacy, at least under the facts of this case, where that tracking uh, continued 24-7 for a period of four weeks. So we have a couple of different kinds of analysis going on, but ultimately the conclusion in both is that um, this is a search under the Fourth Amendment, so normally a warrant would be required. Okay, so people might be worried about their cell phone because our cell phones also have GPS devices. So how will this decision affect the issue of, of law enforcement being able to use your cell phone for GPS tracking? Well, that will require a little bit more development in the law, although we are encouraged um, that the law seems to be moving a little bit in that direction. Um, Justice Sotomayor, who wrote separately, addresses head-on. And the issue here is that if law enforcement is trying to obtain your location information from a third party, so your cell phone provider, um, then there's a legal doctrine called the third party doctrine, uh, comes from a 1976 case called Miller, that could be um, a problem for those of us who would like to see a warrant uh, requirement here as well. And the concept is, the court had held back then, that once you voluntarily disclose your information to a third party, so for example, your cell phone provider, then you are basically uh, consenting to that being disclosed, and you no longer have a privacy interest in that information. Now, that doctrine, as I mentioned, came from, you know, 1976. And so when you look in the digital age, so much of what we do requires disclosing our information to third parties, be it our bank, be it our cell phone provider, our internet company and so forth. So um, Constitution Project, along with a lot of scholars and others, have urged that this doctrine needs um, some rethinking in the digital age and should not have this broad application. We really should continue to have a warrant requirement, um, even in that context. And in the U.S. v. Jones case, we're talking about the GPS tracking case, Justice Sotomayor's separate concurrence points this out directly, that the court needs to rethink that doctrine. Now, I think it's important for my listeners to understand here we are on the campus, so we've got a lot of students listening in, and we also have business people driving by, and we're on the web. I think they need to understand the difference between your husband in a, in a, law, in a divorce putting a GPS on, on, you know, on your car versus law enforcement. And so could you just kind of explain that? Because I think people get a little bit confused that this has nothing to do with that, but it's a different privacy action. Could you clarify that? That's right. Um, the, the Constitution Project, our focus has been, and what we've been talking about so far, is what the government can do. So the Fourth Amendment, um, those restrictions only apply to government actors and do not apply to what private people do. Now, in the wake of this decision by the Supreme Court, there's already been some articles in the paper, and I think some states have been thinking about this, that maybe um, states 
uh, do want to pass statutes, and I believe some have, that restrict what private people can do as well to monitor each other. Um, I think probably in the case, uh, from what I've seen, although I'm not an expert on this, um, there are some states that allow if you own the car, if you jointly own the car and one spouse puts a tracker on to track the other spouse, they're probably not running afoul of any uh, of any laws because they own the car themselves, so they can't be uh, said to be intruding on their our own rights. But yes, it raises a whole separate series of issues if we're talking about what private people do um, to other private people. Right, or or your employer does, or you know if the employer owns the car. I mean, those are totally different issues. Or if a stalker does this to you, so then it might be a criminal action. So. Again, I just wanted to clarify because I had some people say, oh, does that mean that my husband can't do this or, you know, and it's it's Absolutely. totally we're talking about government, law enforcement and the issue of getting a warrant before just going ahead and doing something like this. OK, so that's let's, exactly right. Let's kind of talk a little bit about cybersecurity, because that's a big issue right now. And there, I understand there's a bunch of bills on the Hill about cybersecurity, which there should be. And that your project, the Constitution Project, recently released a report for recommendations for implementation of a comprehensive and constitutional cybersecurity policy. So can you talk about some of the concerns that you have with some of the bills that are that are out there? Right. So what we're looking at here with this um, uh possible legislation on cybersecurity, from our perspective, again, is focusing on what the government can do. So right now, the government's role is to monitor its own networks and uh, create cybersecurity programs to protect the federal government networks. And what a lot of the legislation is looking to do is to set up mechanisms by which there can be public-private partnerships or other ways in which the government may play a role in monitoring private networks and private communications. Most of the bills um, really focus on doing this through what uh, they call information sharing type programs. So that would run two ways, the information sharing. The government would provide um, signature, threat signatures to uh, the private networks to say these are ones that we've uh, become aware of that you may want to be able to protect your networks against. And that does not raise these kinds of privacy concerns. The privacy concerns come up in the other uh, – information flow in the other direction, where private companies would be authorized under some of these bills to share information back to the federal government. And the concern arises when that information may include personally identifiable information about individual Americans, uh, you know, customers and so forth, or uh, may involve sharing the contents of our private communications. And so that's where we need to make sure that there are safeguards in place. Um, if the sharing is done for cybersecurity purposes, that's a good thing, but we need to make sure there are adequate safeguards to uh, protect privacy rights when that does happen. Right. So to what extent would and should DHS be permitted to also share the collected information? Well, so that gets into the issue of if um, this information sharing um, provides uh, results in private companies providing their information to DHS, say, then uh, we, the Constitution Project and various other uh, privacy advocates, want to make sure we have in place uh, both privacy safeguards and use limits. And so your question really gets uh, mostly at the use limits. So we want to make sure that the information, uh, when the federal government gets it, if they're using it for cybersecurity purpose, so your, uh, your, your email has been hacked and has the malware or, you know, other examples where the personally identified information may be 
a necessary component of that cybersecurity information, then that would uh, certainly be something that DHS would need to have access to. But they shouldn't then go sharing it with other parts of the government for non-cybersecurity purposes unless it really rises to the level where they have probable cause to think you're involved in a crime. So the typical example there would be a child pornography. Um, and then if there's probable cause, um, then that would be appropriate for them to share it with law enforcement. But otherwise, we really want to cabin this off. And there are a lot of models in uh, the law for this, such as you know census information, for example. When you turn over all that private information to the census, that's not shared broadly for the government. It's just shared for that uh, specific purpose. So we want to see those kinds of controls here as well. Right. So this kind of gets leads into the issue of data mining. And we know that right now, I mean, whatever happened to the Privacy Act, you know, that, that government wouldn't have any secret databases. What, what is going on with all that? Well, the Privacy Act is still around, still applies, but it does have, you know, various exceptions. And so with data mining, that's another area where our Liberty and Security Committee um, released a report um, with some principles and guidelines for government data mining programs. And again, we want to make sure that those programs are really focused in on the legitimate purposes they're set up for. And the problem in that context principally comes up when um, they get too ambitious without really thinking it through. So the prototypical example of uh, data mining that has been successful and appropriate by the government is uh, by the IRS for tax fraud. Um, they've developed some fairly sophisticated algorithms, I understand, and can you know flag um, cases that really require an audit. The problem is when they've tried to apply these kinds of data mining programs in the counterterrorism context, we don't really have good, sophisticated algorithms for predicting um, what is terrorist activity in that context. Uh, that's mainly a good thing that we don't have so many uh, examples, but it is just very challenging. So we want to make sure that the government is being very careful what their purpose is for the program, that they're developing um, these programs to really focus in on what might legitimately be evidence of uh, terrorist activity and not sweeping too broadly to sweep up so many, um, you know, false positives, if you will, or in innocent Americans um, who really have no business being caught up in that uh, kind of a net. Well, Sharon, what about what about getting a, a warrant for this, like the FISA courts? I mean, if you're going to do data mining, if you're going to go in and actually do extensive data mining, do you need to have a warrant to do this? Is there going to need is there a need for reasonable probable cause? I mean, is this going to, are these new rules going to come out and just say under certain circumstances you can go ahead and do this without any warrant or anybody looking over your shoulder? Sure. Well, the warrant and that kind of analysis is certainly one that we would apply to other types of really surveillance programs. Data mining, uh, by its nature, what that really involves is the use of, you know, computer, uh, computing algorithms to look at broad uh, um, and vast quantities of data and to really sort of vacuum that up and apply some kind of pattern analysis to look for what might be suspicious activity. So they're not going in there looking for a specific suspect. That's the context, you know, with the surveillance program where they might hone in on a given suspect and you want them to have probable cause. Here they're trying to develop these kind of pattern analysis programs where they say, if you put all these factors together, we think this raises a red flag and might ultimately lead us to develop probable cause to then hone in on an individual. So the initial analysis and flagging um, 
you know, it's a different type of uh, situation, so you, it wouldn't be appropriate or necessary to have a warrant. But certainly if you got to the point where, based on that, you wanted to then uh, conduct further surveillance or really open an investigation, then you're uh, looking at a situation where, uh, yes, you would want to uh, make sure that there were uh, appropriate legal standards followed and a warrant. Okay. All right. So you're saying this is kind of like the initial uh, collection of the data, and and it's rather just the red flags that are coming up. But how do you how do you deal with false positives and false negatives on that? Well, again, you want to try and avoid that as much as possible, as I was mentioning earlier, by carefully designing these programs. Another thing you want to do is make sure that you establish data correction procedures. So if people uh, learn of these errors and learn of these situations, they'll be able to correct their data and have real and meaningful redress mechanisms uh, when people are harmed by uh, that kind of a situation. Okay, so so what would happen? I mean, how do you see it? Do you see it almost like the Fair Credit Reporting Act? Um, how would you even know if somebody has data mined and found all these false positives about you? And um, so how would you even know about it to correct it? I mean, how would you even find out about it? Uh, that's an excellent question. In some <laughs> cases, you wouldn't. Um, and yes, the the Fair Credit Reporting Act is a good example and a good model. Um, another context in which this um, comes up and which the government has not yet done a good job, but is the use of watch lists. Um, so we all hear about people trying to get off, uh, you the know, the, TSA, the yeah. no-fly list. Right. Um, but that's that's another example where we need to have better efforts on developing meaningful redress mechanisms so people really can correct these errors when they come to their attention. But in, in the counterterrorism context, you uh, may not know uh, for, for quite some time that you were flagged. So that really requires better efforts on the front end to develop these algorithms and um, be very careful about who you're flagging and to have more internal uh, checks and balances and internal controls. Right. Yeah, I know I have a a client who um, was a victim of criminal identity theft, and he worked in the Los Angeles uh, airport for about seven years for for a security company, and then TSA came in and said, we're going to do a background check. And when he went and had his first background check seven years before, he told them I was a victim of identity theft and they they still hired him. And then TSA had him fired and he can't get a copy of the background check. (laughs) Wow. So, you know, we've got we've got that problem going on. So I think when you're talking about redress, it's a real issue that can ruin people's lives. Absolutely. And, and, And so that's that's a huge issue. Let's kind of skip over to border searches, because I think that's, I mean, I understand that the government has a right to control who enters the country, but how about the government using their power to search documents that are stored on our computers and our smartphones and our laptops, all that kind of stuff? Sure. This is another great example of an area in which uh, technology is developing so much more quickly than the law, and we really need to modify the law to keep up and make sure the Fourth Amendment continues to apply in the digital age. So historically, there has been a doctrine called the border search exemption excuse me, exception uh, from the Fourth Amendment, so that at the border we've recognized that officials have to have greater powers to safeguard who and what is coming into the country. And so the typical requirements for probable cause and a warrant uh, generally have not been applied at the border. Now, Historically, of course, what you could, what what would be covered by this exception would be your person and uh, any contraband you might be carrying, and maybe a small number of papers. But the kinds of things that we can carry today 
are vastly, vastly greater, of course, with everybody carrying laptops and their phones, and you can store, you know, so many photos on there and, your iPad. and other kinds of personal data. <laughs> right. Sorry, I, yeah, your so, iPad, I was just saying, too. Right. And so all of those things, it would not have been possible to have on your person coming across the border. They would have been safe within your home and protected by the Fourth Amendment warrant requirement. So we want to make sure that we continue to apply the Fourth Amendment to today's technology, and really a reasonable suspicion requirement uh, should be in place at the border. Border agents should at least have reasonable suspicion before they start searching through your device, and that would not only help to have the Fourth Amendment continue to apply, but honestly would also make these searches more efficient. If they're trying to, otherwise they're trying to find a needle in a haystack, and if they have no cause uh, for suspicion, it's not really productive to have them searching through everybody's laptop at the border. And then you have to get to the issue of what is reasonable suspicion. And can't they just, you know, say, hey, we'll take it, but we're not going to look at it till we have more, you know, a, a warrant or something. I mean, it just seems to me that I've heard of so many people that they've gone across the border, Americans, and their laptop was taken and they never got it back. And they don't know what they looked at and they didn't even have any real reasonable suspicion. So is that something that you're dealing with? Right. So uh, the Department of Homeland Security, which uh, controls a couple of different types of border officials, has announced its policy is that they don't even require reasonable suspicion. They can search your device, they can retain your device, um, and no reasonable suspicion even required. What our committee, our Liberty and Security Committee, has recommended is that to have just that initial search, they should at least have reasonable suspicion of criminal activity. And then if they want to either make copies of the data on your device or they want to retain it beyond a period of, say, 24 hours, they sh more should be required. They should actually have probable cause and uh, get a warrant to do that even more intrusive uh, holding on to of the device or, or, and seizing it. Right. And so there, is there worry that it'll take too long to get a warrant? Is that something that they're concerned about? Um, they have argued that, although honestly, at the border, they're already in control to, you know, hold on to it. So um, they haven't so much argued that it would be uh, too hard to do, so much as that they don't have to. Uh, oh. They have pointed to this uh, border search uh, exception that has been in place uh, historically. And there are, is one case, uh, you know, currently uh, in the courts that, that may test this. Uh, we'll see how that goes. All right, let's go to public video surveillance. That's that's huge. Now it's so easy to have security cameras everywhere, you know, on all the streets, whatever. Um, I, what do you think about this? I, I understand that law enforcement feels that it's a really good technique. Of course, lots of times, like we looked in, in you know, we saw in London, and it's it's always after the fact that you know they don't necessarily prevent it, but. Um, because of the improvements in networking, law enforcement can connect these cameras to track real people in real time. So how should the law respond to this kind of development? Well, you made a really good point, which is something we have focused on from the Constitution Project, that most of the evidence so far shows that cameras may be helpful after the fact in identifying a suspect and potentially in uh, prosecuting that suspect, but have not had a real good track record on prevention. Mm -hmm. um, and so we recommend that, first of all, 
jurisdictions that are looking to set up camera systems need to really think about this in designing their systems. What is the law enforcement purpose they're trying to serve and that they can realistically serve? And to design those systems with that in mind. And we want to make sure that those cameras are really focused in on that objective and not overly intrusive on privacy rights. And, uh, you know, for example, if you're setting up your camera, focused on what you consider to be either a crime hotspot or a likely target uh, for terrorist activity, you want to make sure that camera obviously can't pan, tilt, and zoom and look in the windows of the apartment building nearby. Right. Uh, sort of, you know, a clear example. Uh, that's a good one. Yeah, you know, another thing that I thought was real interesting that you that the Constitution Project has been really worried about and concerned about for a long period of time is to set up a privacy and civil liberties oversight board. You know, we are the really one of the few countries that is economically advantaged com- countries that does not have a privacy commission. And so this this sounds great, and I understand that back in December, President Obama has nominated five people to serve on this board. So what's going to happen with that? I know they had a privacy committee, and several of my friends have been on the privacy committee for Homeland Security, but they really didn't seem to have much power. Right. So this has been a long time in coming, and we're still not there. The Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board was something that was actually recommended originally by the 9-11 Commission. And when it was originally enacted uh, back in 2004, it was very weak and housed within the White House. In 2007, Congress actually uh, passed legislation to strengthen the board, make it independent, require bipartisan membership, and that all five members would have to actually be confirmed by the Senate. And it gave it subpoena power. So we got good legislation that's helpful, but the board still has not come into existence. And as you mentioned, in December, we finally, for the first time, actually got five nominees for a full slate to serve on the board. So we are now uh, hopeful that the Senate will indeed confirm these five members so we can actually get the board coming into existence and starting its very important work. It's supposed to look at national security programs and make sure that privacy rights are safeguarded. And and it can play a very important role in a lot of these kinds of programs we've been talking about today. Um, in fact, in uh, some of the cybersecurity uh, legislative proposals, they actually cite a role for this Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board in conducting some of the oversight function. But unless and until that board actually exists um, and we get confirmed members, um, obviously it can't play that role. So help me understand, if as an oversight, it would would it be like the government accounting office, the GAO? I mean, what actually, what power would it really have? Yeah, a little bit like that because it's a, technically it's an independent agency, although obviously it's uh, in the executive branch. It would have subpoena power. It's supposed to make uh, recommendations, uh, you know, to to the president, uh, to the executive branch on national security programs and making sure to that the privacy safeguards incorporated. And it also has the capacity to perform a sort of oversight function analogous to what Congress could do, but focused in on these issues and look at records and, uh, you know, look at the actual operation of programs once they're up and running, not just review them up front. Well, that sounds great. And we are out of time. Oh, my goodness, Sharon, you are just such a wealth of great information. So would you just give your website and then we need to go? 
Sure. Thank you so much. It is www.constitutionproject.org. Well, we're and gonna thank ha- you so much. And we'll have you back again because this is very important stuff, and, and we really honor all the great work that you're doing there. So thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy. Join us every Monday morning right here at 8 a.m., And visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can see our upcoming guests. You can download podcasts and you can write us emails about what you're concerned about for privacy in the information age. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 